Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another installment of our Insight into Teaching Intro Psych podcast. My name is, again, A.J. LaFerrera. I am on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill, and today I am joined by two wonderful instructors that I'd love to introduce themselves. Greg, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Feist, and I'm a professor of psychology at San Jose State, and I've been teaching intro psych for, oh, 25 years, uh, and I'm also the coordinator in our, for our departmental introductory psychology program. My name is Manda Williamson. I am an assistant professor of practice at the University of Nebraska. Uh, my background is in psychobiology. Uh, I teach intro to psychology in a couple of different formats. I teach large face-to-face sections of 200 or more. I teach a small learning community section of 25 students. And then I also have an online section that has anywhere from two to 300 students as well, and they're all running simultaneously. Great, well, thank you guys both for joining us today. Today, we're going to be covering the biology and behavior chapter in the intro psych curriculum. So this is obviously an area where students tend to struggle, and I figured a great place to get us started would be to talk about what are your guys' goals when you start teaching this chapter? What do you want students to take away uh, after you've completed teaching this chapter? Well, I, you know, first of all, let me just say that this is the only chapter I devote three separate lectures to. All the other ones are two. So I think it's very, very critical and very important. And what I really try to emphasize in this is that it's not just facts about how the brain works and the different structures and genetics, but rather how these are dynamic processes. And to me, that's the most exciting thing. One of the most exciting findings in psychology uh, in the last 20, 30 years is how the brain actually changes with experience and now even how gene expression changes with experience. So it's a much more dynamic thing than just this static memory and memorization of facts. So that's what I really try to focus on is the dynamic aspect of it and how it really does interact with the classic nature and nurture theme and topic. You know, that's really cool because I would almost have to echo that exactly. Um, When I look at the specific goals that I try to set for a class, of course, because it's an intro class and there's an anticipation that some of our students will move forward into other physiologically based psych classes, I want them to acquire the language of the biobasis of behavior. So when we say something like a soma or we say something like chloride or a particular brain region, maybe they can't tell the entire story, but it will at least resonate with them. I also want them to recognize, too, the dynamics of the nervous system and especially the integration of regions. So a lot of times they get bogged down in terminology and the minutia of trying to remember what a thalamus is. And then we forget to build up the big picture of how critically important that relay center is in almost every aspect of perceiving and in formulating responses. And then lastly, of course, for me, because this is um, what got me actually into psychology, I don't want them to lose the majesty of the nervous system, with, and I want to also help to demystify it. I'm so excited about the awesome stories. Think about how many Nobel Prize winners we've had in the neurosciences. It is the final frontier, and so I, I always try to work in some of those stories just to get them excited about some of the goofy things that neuroscientists have done that in turn enabled them to earn a Nobel Prize. 
So I try to incorporate that excitement as well. Yeah, I also agree with that. And in fact, what I try to do along those lines is to try to tell the stories of, first of all, how the brain actually really does, of course, control every single thing we do. And they don't quite realize that. But there's nothing about what we think and what we feel and and our personalities that isn't based in our brain. But I also start off, actually, with uh, I like starting off with evolution and genetics just to put the brain in context, meaning I really get into the deep time of, okay, how long have humans been on the planet? And what's interesting is how, how they really underestimate time frames. A lot of times they'll say, oh, 10,000 years, 15,000 years. And it's like, wow, okay. Uh, Any others? You know, and then two people will say, oh, a million. And it's like, well, okay, it depends on how you define human. But, you know, we've been around for a few million years at at least. Anyway, that kind of puts it all in context of that this brain that we have didn't just come into being. And then getting into the neuroplasticity, even though I don't use that word right away, the fact is that our brain as individuals changes with our own experience. So anyway, I try to tie those two together. That there's a We as a species evolved and changed over time, and our brain came into being over a long period of time, and then our brain within individuals is continuing to, to change. Great. Well, you guys started to get to the next topic that we wanted to cover, which is, you know, the, the chapter on biology of behavior. There's a lot to cover, and Greg, you said you devote three lectures to this. Is there anything that you don't cover that's traditionally covered in this chapter, or are there things that you're adding that you typically don't see taught in an intro psych biology chapter? Well, the last thing in my chapter and then in my, my lectures, which I seldom have time to really get into, is the measurement. And I get into it then later on in the semester because, you know, I just spend so much time talking about you know, evolution and genetics and the brain and the brain regions and neurotransmitters and how they work and so on that it's, even with three chapters, I seldom get, can spend as much time as I would like on brain imaging techniques. Um, I mean, I go over it briefly, so I, but I don't spend as much time. For me, I do not cover the endocrine system. Um, I make a passing remark. It helps them to understand sluggish systems. I make fun of it. No, I don't make fun of it. But for me, I try to keep it solely focused on the nervous system. If they want to learn about anything functioning, I tell them flat out they'll probably have to either read on their own or they'll get it um, when they take a, a different course in physiology or in even anatomy. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on much more on epigenetics or genetics. Um, we have a my book has a different chapter on individual differences where that's covered. And I guess one other thing that I now think about is that since it is foundational for other chapters is I've gotten into about a little 10-minute lecturette on the logic of twin adoption studies. Since we talk about that in personality, we talk about it in development, we talk about it in disorders of the, the mind, you know, that the why is studying twins who have been adopted so critical for un- unpacking how much is is something influenced by genetics and how much of it is influenced by environment. So I, I've discovered that I need to get into that in more detail than I thought because we talk about it throughout the semester. And if they don't understand the logic of that study, then they kind of miss out later on on what it's telling us. 
So, Greg, I'm interested in your perspective as an author. And for those of you that are listening, don't know, Greg is an author for McGraw-Hill, for us, um, of psychology perspectives and connections. Greg, from that perspective, are there things in the book that you don't get to cover in class? And then on the flip side, are there things that you include in the classroom that maybe you weren't able to include in the chapter? Right. Good question, because actually I do both. I definitely go into a lot more detail in the book. And again, that's why one thing that I like about being an author is I get to do that. But then on the other hand, especially as an author, uh, I have the flip side issue. of I don't want to simply repeat what I say in the book in class. So I always, in fact, actually in this chapter in particular, I have a couple of films on like epigenetics and, and how epigenetics works and looking at twins and a few other things that I don't go into as much detail in the book. So it's really both. And that's what I like about both teaching and then writing is I get to be aware of other aspects and I don't want it to be a complete overlap between the two. But but in general, I think I get into more detail in the book. So one other question before we kind of swap over to looking at some of the practical applications and examples and stories you guys use in the classroom. Within the context of future psychology courses, what do other instructors and professors expect students to know about this chapter coming out of intro? And Amanda, I know you've, you've even taught a biological basis course, so I'm interested in your perspective, especially on this one. My hope is that I don't have to spend much time at all on simple terminology, that we can dive into the physiological processes really quickly that we can expand upon just the basic brain regions and lower level cortical structures as quickly as possible. So I, I really would prefer that they come in with an understanding of the language of the terminology that's present, a basic understanding of neurophysiology so that we can build upon the different types of synapses, and then some of the broader pictures of how we have uncovered some of these findings, some of the different techniques that we've used with case studies, with imaging, with single unit recording, that kind of thing. Greg, how about from your end as the intro psych coordinator? What do you want students across the intro psych course at San Jose State, uh, what do you want them to take into the subsequent courses that they'll take in the psych department? Yeah, and that's where you get into the more yeah nuts and bolts. You know, I always get very excited about the big picture perspective and so on because uh, it affords a context, but then when it comes to really them taking away something uh, from this course, you simply have to get into all the different brain regions and their major functions. And of course, how the neuron works, which is probably the driest part of the whole intro psych, but it's very important for, for them to understand. And sure, they've probably been introduced to the basics of, uh, you know, the sodium potassium pump and, you know, and all that in high school even, but they still get clearly confused by it and they just simply have to know and then they have to know you know what the thalamus does and the hypothalamus because we're going to talk about that a lot more in learning and memory for instance uh, the hypothalamus since it's so important in learning and memory so they really do need to carry that over first to our class but then secondly yes to other courses outside at my university it is a GE or general ed class and so most of my students are not psych majors and they're going to really need to apply this stuff outside of our major. And so the nuts and bolts and, and uh, of the brain systems, the neurotransmitters, how a neuron works, and so on. 
you know, that was a little bit of a window into, I think, the philosophical approach. And I think that helps inform the second part of what we want to talk about, which is the practical applications in the classroom. So how do you guys open this class, or how do you get started when you're approaching the biology of behavior chapter? Well, for me, because it is what got me uh, actually interested in any kind of science for that matter, I, I share that story with them um, about what hooked me. And I was I had to take an intro to psych class because I was a secondary ed math major. And I got to the end of the chapter on the biobases, and I read about a split brain patient. And of course, in the 90s, I couldn't go to YouTube, I couldn't go to the internet even, God help me, and actually see what this looked like. So I'm reading this description going, wait, what? The, what how can this be? So if you see something on this side of space, you can't speak your experience? This is crazy. This is a human being. And what? And it just really, it, it nabbed me and it mesmerized me. And I wanted to learn more. And I wanted to figure out how this structure that, you know, for me at that time was akin to a soul and completely mysterious is also quite mechanical. And that's what actually got me involved. And, and a lot of times, some of the, the memorable moments that come from this chapter come from the stories that I share with my students about how some of these discoveries were made. So I do, I, and I start off this chapter with two things. Uh, one is, I've, uh, as I've already kind of mentioned, I start off with questions. First of all, I actually often ask them for their questions. I like to start off a lot of my lectures, new chapters, with what questions do you have about the brain and evolution and genetics and so on. And, and a lot of times they ask questions that we're going to end up getting into and it and engages them. But I kind of also guide the questioning, again, with a big, big time perspective of, you know, again, how long have humans been around? Uh, when did brains first start on this planet? How is our brain structure is similar in all the different species of animals and on how are they different? But then I also have a move into a personal story, which is my brother, you know, 25 years ago now almost, was almost killed. He, had a, uh, he was hit by a car riding his bike and he suffered a massive brain injury. He was in a coma for two weeks. He was vegetative for five or six months. And that, seeing that, just brought home intensely and deeply uh, how critical the brain is when you see part of it injured. And then I wondered during the months that he was vegetative, okay, what's going on? What is he aware of? What is he thinking? What is his brain capable of? And, you know, and we don't, of course, know the answers, but it brought up those questions. And then it just made it very clear how when you damage certain structures, look what happens. I mean, if you doubt the importance of the brain, then just simply, you know, phase of course, is another example, classic example to bring in there. But, but yeah, so I kind of start off on a big picture perspective and then move it down to this personal one. And they're they're very engaged with that because it's a pretty dramatic story and it's one I lived in. But it, it really brings home the importance of the brain. Yeah, it sounds like both ways that you open class are both relatable and personal, which I think students appreciate. And I think that helps drive some engagement right off the bat. Right. Um, I think that's one of the things that we really struggle with in this chapter is that it can become really dry, really disconnected, and not tied to anything uh, of interest. If you don't have an, an an inherent interest in biology or in physiology, there is this, why are we doing this? This is poopy. And so 
to try to get them interested right away to have some sort of investment, I think it really helps to, to drive the course. Another thing that I, I also do is, politically speaking, um, our president in 2013 kind of laid the smack down on neuroscientists and told them that, because I don't do research now, so I could exclude myself. He said, you're not connecting regions of the brain one to another. We still don't know how a functional circuit actually looks and works in the brain. And so that started the brain initiative that's still running. And it's this massive collaboration. And they've come up with this thing called the human connectome, which shows really, really awesome right. detail of the synapses of the brain. And then we know that also at Duke, they were working on a prototype of an exoskeleton. And that's pretty mind-blowing because it looks like Iron Man. And so that also helps to get them to ask questions of how does this nervous system give rise to almost everything about me? And I, I think that's really important that they also have an awareness of, of how this field has been moving and even some of the politics that surround it. Amanda, you had talked about some stories that you use in the classroom. Uh, I know you just mentioned a couple of them briefly, but are there other specific ones that you would be willing to share with us? Sure. So when we get to the section on neurotransmitters, there's like a table and it gives a list of probably seven really important ones and they have to memorize what it's associated with what. But for me, that's where I try to put something in there that's going to tie a memory that will be activated about neurotransmitters and the importance of them. And if we know anything about the history of neuroscience, Otto Lowy had a dream two consecutive nights about frog legs and he wrote it down the first night. So it's these kind of how we uncover the fact that neural communication is chemical and that this thing that he called Vegas stuff was actually acetylcholine. I mean, this stuff came to him in a dream. And the funny part is he wrote it down the first night and he couldn't read his own handwriting the next morning. But his brain wouldn't give up on him and he had the dream the second night. And that's how he got the experiment that helped him uncover that the vagus nerve releases acetylcholine. Now you can just say, here's acetylcholine, memorize it, but now it kind of is a cool story. There's stories of Hubel and Wiesel. This is something that I would work into the next chapter probably, but if you're trying to show students the process of how the scientific method works, Hubel and Wiesel were tasked with uncovering what grandmother cells were during their time. There was a belief that primary visual cortex had individual neurons that were responsible for being active for a particular picture like your grandma. And they set up a study where they were showing cats dots that were light and dark and nothing was happening and they were getting mad and they started throwing their slides across the room. And it was through that anger that they actually figured out what those cells did. And now the really cool thing is that just this year, we had the same kind of thing. Do you remember in the news, there was this idea that there was a Jennifer Aniston neuron in the mm -hmm. hippocampus? Well, and so again, this whole process repeated itself, but now for different neurons that were responsible for face recognition, still the visual process. And just recently they figured out, well, it's not actually Jennifer Aniston's face that these neurons are responding to, but it's a particular property in a location on her face that they're responding to. And it's so similar to what Hubel and Wiesel had to first go through, but in a different structure. And it shows us this process of how the scientific method works and how we assume wrongly and then through further research and patience, it's brought to life and a better answer is gathered. And so that's how I also work in how the scientific method is working in neuroscience. I'm so excited. Like This just came out. I just printed this out two weeks ago. Aren't you excited, AJ? So excited. <laughs> <laughs> and we will share all of these in the podcast notes afterwards. So if you want to access them, you'll have access. Greg, how about okay. you? Well. There's a, a few things for me that I try to 
focus on. And again, I have this film on epigenetics, but it's more than that. It actually gets into these twins in Spain who were being studied of different ages from age three to their late 60s and showing that literally the old fashioned idea about genetics is that genes, they're set and uh, they kind of lay down the blueprint for all the structures in our body and so on. But we now know that the path between genotype as it gets expressed is a dynamic developmental process. And yeah, you can say that and, and so on. But but when I show this film, it's actually, it was uh, a Nova segment. It's, and so then I use that as a springboard for talking about, well, what happens to our bodies by exposure to things and, and uh, after we're born and what? And do you think that, for instance, cancer happens because we get exposed to certain chemicals? Well, that's an epigenetic process, probably, you know, almost certainly that, that our genes are getting turned on and off by what kinds of things we get exposed to. So yeah, that kind of thing too. They're always trying to just bring it into something they can relate to. I have some practical stuff too for trying to get students to understand even the adaptability of the nervous system and also how neurons communicate. That's probably a variation of what you've seen in instructor guides already. So at the very beginning before we discuss the nervous system and how it's usually broken down in a hierarchical diagram where you separate the central and the peripheral nervous system. Um, I know that in the past there is this task where you try to get students to, I think they place their hand on their neighbor's shoulder and you try to help them by using the speed calculation, figure out how fast neural transmission is. But I use that more of a, we still do a reaction time. But the funny thing about that is if you have students do this two or three different times, their reaction time decreases. So that helps them to understand the adaptability of the nervous system. Even person to person, they get quicker and quicker as they repeat tasks. We also talk about the importance of repetition and learning, even from that example, about how repeated exposures foster network solidifying. Um, I have them grab different regions of each other's bodies to show them how the, the longer the reach the more neural communication involved, the slower uh, the speed will be at the end. Uh, and they, they start to get an idea that, okay, so there really is something important about the length of the pathway and the speed of time that it takes to register that information. Yeah. Um, I know that there's also um, an opportunity to have students become their own synapse. And this is not new. This is something from instructor's manuals. But when I have really big lectures, it's so fun to take them outside. And we go all over campus, and we make this massive circuit. And we use different shaped chocolates as neurotransmitters so that they can get an understanding for how uh, synapses work, how antagonists work, how agonists work. And we do that all in one big demonstration as well. So, Amanda, <laughs> can you walk us through that example in a little bit more detail? Sure. So before class, I just get eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and I put pluses and minuses on them and that's to represent excitatory inhibitory postsynaptic potentials. Then I make another sheet of paper that has a really big plus sign and make sure that it's the same size plus sign on three or four more sheets of paper. Um, so I have some students who serve as receptor sites on dendrites. I have some students who serve as segments on an axon. And if you really like your class and they're fun, I myelinate them by wrapping them in saran wrap. <laughs> they <Wow>. like that. <laughs> and then at the end of the axon, I have the terminal buttons where those students would hold a particular shape of chocolate, like a Hershey's Kiss. The job, I also have a soma, 
and I have a spot on the axon whose job it is is to yell fire when enough neurotransmitter binds. That's probably why you should take him outside because obviously that's illegal to do in a lecture hall. But we've done that too. So <laughs> once um, I am usually the presynaptic neuron just holding different shaped chocolates and I tell the class that a neurotransmitter is a three-dimensional shape. It has its own specific shape, just like these particular chocolates do. So I'll use Hershey's Kisses, I'll use Peppermint Patties, I'll use little Hershey bars because they all have different shapes associated with them. So just to see if they understand the importance of the receptor site itself, I throw an incorrectly shaped chocolate and the students don't catch them. And then the class has to indicate, or everybody if they're doing it, has to indicate what happens next. And they should obviously then understand, well, nothing happens. Then I will show how it should work. Okay, this is a Hershey's chocolate-shaped receptor. And then when four receptors bind neurotransmitter, the beginning of the axon shouts fire. Everybody else holds up their signs that have plus signs on them. They all shout fire. And then when it gets to the receptor sites, they drop their chocolates. To show them how agonists work, I give them a different colored Hershey's kiss. Um, we have a conversation about that to show them antagonists. I can give them another shape or I can give them a chocolate that has a really sharp corner on it that looks like the tip end of a Hershey's chocolate. So even though it's not the exact same shape, it has enough of, of a similarity that it will fit into the receptor site. And so we can have discussions about all of that while they're actively doing something. At the end of that class, when we discuss how neurons communicate, I have them all reflect for 10 minutes. They can work together in groups or not, but I ask them to write in essay what we just did using the correct language, and I put the terminology up for them, and they have to put the story together of how neural communication occurs. Yeah. So a very applied example, it looks like. Yeah, just to try to keep them involved and not uh, zoning out. If they're moving around and they're doing something, it tends to help. Fascinating. That's a really well done. Yeah, that's about as applied as you can get. I have 250 students, so I'm, that seems yeah, like that's the fun be... part. Take them outside, like snake them all over campus. It's really funny. Greg, any um, kind of practical examples that you use in the classroom, or well, I mean, I don't anything get like nearly that practical. I just try to, like, for instance, when I'm talking about neurotransmitters, it's very important to try to tie those into not. Just their basic function but disordered function like if there's too much or too little you know the standard stuff and so I try to focus on you know how uh, you know for instance anxiety uh, you know I mean it's not this simple and I try to make that very clear but but if you have too little serotonin uh, for instance that can lead to some constant or more regular experiences of things like anxiety and moods can be changed or of course GABA and alcohol it's always one to, you know, why why are we so uncoordinated when we drink alcohol? Well, you know, even though that's a chapter or two ahead, you know, get into it's a depressant, but it's it has this effect on this part of the brain and it's shutting down central nervous system behavior. And so we get uncoordinated, we forget, we black out if we drink too much. So I try to bring in those kinds of examples that they can, I hope, relate to more than just simply learning what GABA or serotonin or acetylcholine do. I think the drinking example is an especially timely one for many students because, yes, yeah, again, we talked about making material relatable. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. Of course, I joke with them. I say, well, none of you are even old enough to drink anyway, so you wouldn't know this, but this is what alcohol does to you. <laughs> so one thing I'm actually curious to hear from both of you on is we talk about the brain in this chapter 
successfully. Do you have access to a real brain or do you show them images of a real brain? Unfortunately, our university does not and would not probably have access to that. That's just beyond our our means. So I use kind of relatively pretty standard images uh, on my slides of different brain regions is what I do. For me, I use a 3D atlas that you individually can click on and rotate and build up structures and kind of in a gross scale build up, for example, maybe the motor pathway. But for me, what would be really cool is if I could somehow get that on every student's laptop because of some of the group exercises that I do to try to build up the integration of different uh, brain and cortical regions. Um, one example that I do is I show them the JAWS trailer. I use it again in the chapter on learning so it's familiar to them. But in this first example, we use the JAWS trailer to take the perspective of the female actress in the video who's about to get attacked by a shark. And so some of the students could decide that they want to try to relay the conscious experience of feeling a shark bite, while other students maybe want to try to understand the, the biological basis of the withdrawal response of kicking your feet out of the way. And so as groups, they decide which integrative pathway they want to try to build up based on the brain regions that they've learned about. They speak one to another and, and different brain regions come to light, but they kind of have to go back and just look at individual pictures. What would be cool is if they had that access um, to an atlas in front of them, and they could build it up and rotate it together. They could teach one another, and then as a large scale, groups of students could come and teach of the different brain regions that they believed would interact to convey the conscious experience of hearing the shark, feeling the shark, and trying to evade the shark. Well, that's a really great example, and part of the reason that I ask is because I know that this chapter we talk about the brain so much, and yet there's so little access to either a real brain in the best of scenarios or in many others, just um, the ability to manipulate even virtually a real brain. Right. And a tool that we've created at McGraw-Hill is Anatomy and Physiology Revealed for Psychology. And the, the program is created in partnership with the University of Toledo. It uses real brains um, that you can virtually manipulate. So you can change views, peel back layers, and it lets you look at all of the different parts of the brain of a real brain so that students can see what it looks like, they can manipulate it. Amanda, to what you were saying, you could kind of make the connections between the anatomy of the brain and some of yeah. the impacts on behavior. So I'm gonna provide some information on anatomy and physiology revealed for psychology in the podcast notes. If you're interested in learning more about that, uh, there'll also be a link, so you can click that for more information. Greg and Amanda, you guys are welcome to also take a look at that. I'll send that to you afterwards. But I just thought of something that I would share because like I said the real brains can sometimes be difficult to access, whether in real life or virtually. So, well, and yeah, I think that would be an awesome tool. Yeah, that kind of Sorry. reminds me of medical students having access to cadavers, but you know, that's not practical. That a realistic brain rather than just cartoony versions of it or drawn versions of it, I think would be really. Cool, yeah. Yes, I think that would be very, very helpful for sure, especially I don't want to have them incur an additional expense just so I can get them to buy a 3D atlas. Um, so that would be a, a really, uh, that would be a good thing for me to look at too, especially. Great. Okay, so with that, uh, I want to turn it back over to you guys for some parting thoughts on this chapter in the Intro Psych curriculum. Greg, do you want to kick us off? Well, I, I guess my kind of, again, take-home message, as I said at the outset, was that, you know, how dynamic this all is, how 
changing and, you know, and how we now know through all kinds of fascinating research, how our brain and even our genetic influence is impacted by what happens to us, you know, and that learning really is changing the brain, for instance, and that's something, you know, we haven't gotten into too much and that's a later chapter, but, you know, I think that's fascinating when we literally tell them that people like Eric Kendall have discovered that when you learn something long-term, literally you know, new neural structures grow and form. And so learning changes your brain. And, and that's what we're trying to do. I always kind of joke with them that, you know, among other things, this chapter in education in general is trying to literally change your brain. Uh, and if you learn something for more than a few minutes, you know, especially over weeks, rest assured that your brain is changing. And that brings home, again, the dynamic aspect of these brain processes. So that's what I kind of try to focus on is is that this is the and that it, that the science and our understanding of it is changing. And so I try to as Amanda said earlier with the the frog example and so on. That's fascinating to get into the details of that research and how it was done by real people and real discoveries. And, and again, it might inspire students to think about that in a in a way that it engages them enough to even want to. Take next step. Like, we don't know all the neurons, I mean, all the neurotransmitters that exist. So anyway, so that's kind of my take-home message. I think mine is more uh, even practical. When we're developing a class in intro, the daunting part even for instructors and students tend to mirror this is just the sheer volume of material. And so for me especially, I think it's so important that we don't lose sight of just sound pedagogical techniques and how we deliver information. The tricky part for this chapter on biobases is if it, it isn't um, necessarily a person's strength, you have to spend a lot of time learning about this. And so if most of your time is, is trying to acquire the material, you might lose sight on how to deliver it effectively. And so I think it's important that we give ourselves time and grace to learn about this. And I know even when I ask my students to read, I found National Geographic and also Scientific American very accessible but then it also delivers some really complicated information at the level that's sufficient for intro to help get students more invested and even uh, we as instructors a little bit more invested in this. Don't be intimidated by this stuff. And then don't forget sound practices when you attempt to deliver it in a meaningful way to students. Great. Well, Greg, Amanda, thank you both for joining us. To everybody that's out there listening, thank you as well for joining us. And I'll post all the notes in the podcast notes. And thank you again for everybody who joined us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.